Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So it does appear that markets are getting nervous about something. The VIX uh, 1681, certainly above where it's been for months, although off a little bit from uh, the last couple of days. What are they nervous about? Are they nervous about the end of stimulus? Are they nervous about slowing growth around the world? Laxman Ajathan is the co-founder and chief operations officer of the Economic Cycle Research Institute, and he is here with us this morning. Good morning, Laxman. Um Good morning. When you, when you do your models, and yep. um, we'll get to your forecast in a moment, you're not predicting a recession right away, but uh, do you include financial markets in uh, what you do? Because the Fed's they criticized uh, because their Furbis model does not include uh, financial market feedback effects. Sure. Um, in the big picture, we don't have models. We're looking at indicators which move ahead of turning points in growth or inflation cycles. All right, but, small M model. Yeah, small M model. But, you know, you know, I think for the discussion, the answer is yes. We do include uh, financial market data. It's an important very important uh, area to get a heads up on uh, where things are likely to go in the future. Um, and so that's a little odd in the post-GFC environment because uh, a lot of the market data is maybe perhaps more influenced by central bank activity. Uh, we also are getting data from government sources, uh, and we are also getting data from private surveys. So there's a number of different inputs, sources of inputs, all cross-checking one another. And it's when they move in concert that we get tipped off that a cycle turning point may be underway. How far ahead do markets move? I'm reminded of the old yeah. Paul Samuelson quote about the stock market forecasting nine of the last five recessions. Sure, sure. Well, and what he left out there, uh, by the way, because uh, that's a great quote, uh, is that the the other ones that uh, the non recessions uh, were actually uh, slowdowns? So the market is very sensitive to cycles in economic growth, whether or not a recession occurs. So um, markets in general are what I would call short leading indicators. Uh, they lead by a quarter or two at cycle turning points. If you look empirically over long periods of time and, and different markets. Uh, and there, of course, you want to see if you can lead that a little bit, and that's very difficult to do. There are some shorter leading, in, uh, excuse me, longer leading indicators, which might lead by three quarters or maybe four quarters, uh, and that's about as far as you can get. And the reliability goes down when you push it. What's the most important indicator uh, that you follow or, or the one that tells you the most uh, under your system of what's going to happen? You know, the probably, well... Longest lead is very important, right? So uh, a very esoteric uh, leading indicator is our global long leading index of industrial growth. 
and and this is the only truly global economic cycle which what, is out what, there. Well, explain what that is. Sure, so, it's uh, long leading indexes. So we look, we have long leading indexes for twenty economies. All yeah, but, uh, them, but all of industrial major. growth, what what is it that you're measuring with industrial growth? Uh, uh, industrial production. So that's pretty hard data. Uh, you can get that for all the major markets around the world, uh, countries. And looking at cycles in industrial production growth globally, that's the true global cycle. Services, uh, not so much. They don't sync up. Housing, construction doesn't sync up. But manufacturing, uh, we're all – it's a global manufacturing floor. We're all responsible for different parts of the input. So we that is a pretty cohesive global cycle. When we look at our long-leading indicators for all the countries and focus in on uh, the diffusion of them as they relate to the industrial cycle, we get a very long lead, uh, three or four quarters. And uh, it's something that probably isn't on anyone's radar screen. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a, there's a cycle upturn that's been underway uh, uh, kind of in the background uh, from very, very weak levels. Uh, and that may be supportive of things like commodity prices or less negative industrial production growth in some areas. Launchman, I didn't get to this on television this morning. Let me ask it right now. On the front of your research note is a stunning 1% statistic. Is your run rate on real GDP like a 1.0%? Thereabouts. I mean, we don't do a point forecast, but when we do the simple math and you add up the primary components of growth, it's productivity growth and Demographics. That's Demo- not that's not morning in America. Is it? <laughs> no, and it, it's it and and it's this is the you know there's a lot of discussion about what's politically correct to say and and you you all know that and this certainly is not politically correct to say that uh, the long run trend yeah. growth is lower than some of the more depressed estimates and it's not only a U.S. problem it's a developed country problem and. As a result of being a developed country problem, it's also a developing market problem because they sell to the developed markets. So um, until we – when you start talking about policy prescriptions, and there's a lot of that flying around, uh, I made the comment that many of them missed the mark because uh, unless you can argue, uh, I think, coherently that it's going to move productivity growth up, whatever your policy is – then you've you're probably going to fall short and when i say stop digging uh, with respect to monetary policy i understand the intentions but when you have very very low interest rates uh what you end up with is a lot of overcapacity and a lot of zombie companies that should have been shut down that stay alive and everybody's carrying a lot of inventory Uh because it's cheap to carry it and as a result the investment in right. capital investment that has a chance of increasing, right. increasing your productivity growth never happens. Lachman Achathan with this ECRI Economic Cycle Research Institute. You have a thing which pushes against the happy talk. Mm. It is GRC, the growth rate cycle. This goes to the heart of the distinction of ECRI versus what other economists do discuss. Well, there's accelerations in dec- in our view. There's an inherent business cycle in a free market economy. The worst kind of downturn or growth rate cycle downturn can actually go negative and turn into a recession. Uh, and 
those that don't are fluctuations in growth, accelerations and decelerations. We've been experiencing a deceleration, a growth rate cycle downturn uh, since uh, early 2015. Uh, and it's against that that the Fed had plans to raise rates four or something times, and they've done it once. So that's where this uh, the Fed has run smack into the economic cycle. If they get their way, they'll be able to uh, raise rates once this year. Uh, looking at the forward data that anticipates cyclical turns in the growth rate cycle, there's a tiny uptick. Uh, it's not enough to make a, 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 a bottom call in the growth rate cycle, but we're mm -hmm. watching it. And um, it's it's going to break one or two ways. Either it's going to develop into a growth rate cycle upturn or it's going to deteriorate. It's going to be a false start and deteriorate. What do corporate profits tell you then? I mean, if, you, if you're a business cycle mm -hmm. analysis, mm -hmm. do corporate profits matter? They matter. I mean, it, I think there's a question as to how they're measured. Um, but uh, conceptually, they matter. They uh, can help drive uh, investment, uh, which is critical to productivity growth. But you really need profits, which is some sort of cash. Mm -hmm. uh, you need to have your capacity constrained, which it absolutely is not. And you need to have some confidence in the future, uh, which, uh, mm -hmm. which there's little. So I don't see a lot of investment coming, uh, even if uh, corporate right. profits are less bad. And, Mike, the reason I brought that question up is one of the great missed calls – it was 1998, 1999, where people thought corporate profits were great. And there was that moment in 2001 where we went, oops, mm -hmm. they weren't. Well, go ahead. You know, I was just going to say, you know, you could – so the reported profits are the reported profits, and everybody's a pro at kind of analyzing and yeah. moving those around. But you look at what can you charge for your – for, for what you sell, and how much does it cost you to make it? So you can kind of back into corporate profits that way, or poor corporate profits growth, or which way is the win leaning. And um, certainly on tradable goods, on tangible things, there's zero pricing power. We're hearing that all over the place. You might see that mostly in autos or uh, uh, some apparel and things like that. Um, but you see that when you look at the global uh, export price inflation, it's non-existent. In fact, it was deflation. Uh, and this is, I'm getting away from oil to other stuff. Uh, you have a real problem in pricing. Where you have some pricing power is in services. And um, as we see in rents or healthcare. And that's a problem for anyone who's mm -hmm. a person who lives and tries to, has to have health care and a place to live and food and things like that. Fortunately, most of our listeners are not people uh, <laughs> and don't need any place to live. Uh, well, let's get to um, what we don't pay you for here, mm. and, and that is to come on and give your forecast. What do you see? We've talked about sure. the GDP slowdown, but uh, what do you see going forward when you put all the numbers together? Well, all the numbers together. First, you absolutely have a growth rate cycle downturn, which uh, is, is agonizing the Fed. Uh, at the same time, you have an inflation cycle upturn. It's a cyclical inflation cycle upturn. So uh, uh, for a, a few quarters, uh, happening inside of a long-term decline in inflation expectations. So you'll, if you look at longer inflation expectations, those are going to remain down. Nevertheless, uh, the Fed will get a little squeezed by that, in particular, as I said, by services inflation. What remains to be determined, it has not been determined yet. Uh, if this growth rate cycle downturn has a chance of ending uh, as we go into next year. And uh, I think that will be determined uh, over the next several months. Well, I got to throw this in. 
Yes. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because there is a date out there. The first Tuesday in November. Yeah. Uh, to what extent does an election uh, play into your forecast? Because what we have often yeah. seen is a lot on hold, and then after the election's over, then people sure. feel better and get back to whatever. Sure. Well, look, when you're in a growth rate cycle downturn, um, you uh, be- become a little bit more vulnerable to shocks. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but it really depends on your forward indicators, and those have uh, stabilized a little bit. Uh, so... Um, we don't have uh, a high likelihood of a recession this year, uh, and that is noteworthy. That is news, I think. Um, what happens uh, beyond that uh, has not been determined yet. It will be a mix of what goes on in the markets, what goes on with private surveys, what goes on with actual data and leading indicators. Right. Okay, let's leave it there. Lachman, thank you so much. You're really most interesting views on a, a tepid U.S. economy, something like what we heard from Sri uh, Kumar Tepid, yesterday. you make it sound like tea. Well, maybe tea, but it's not recession. I mean, Lachman said that. It's not recession, Michael. Yeah, I don't know anybody that could say headlines, saying short-term but recession. Um, what portion? Larry Summers what? says in about two or three years. I don't know. Well, we'll see. I've really been looking forward to this. Let's get right to it. Uh, Will Pomerantz uh, is is essentially definitive on Russian history and does that at the esteemed Kennan Institute for Advanced Russian Studies. This is at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Uh, Dr. Pomerantz, wonderful to have you back again. I assume when you were at the University of London a few years ago, you didn't worry about Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. Please explain from your your august academic perch this linkage of this fascination of Mr. Putin, of Mr. Trump. How does it filter in Will Pomerantz's land? Well, what's very interesting is I think Putin is essentially using all the skills that he learned in the KGB and all the skills that he learned in terms of handling people in order to kind of work his way into Trump's confidence. So the statements from Trump, you know, that Putin likes me or he says nice things about me and therefore I'll say nice things about him, I think that comes from years of training in many ways from Putin and his ability to to appeal to people on a certain person-to-person level. Uh, in terms of Trump's uh, admiration for Putin, I think it comes from his belief of, of what a leader is. And I think, uh, obviously, people have different interpretations of what real leadership is. Uh, but from Trump's perspective, someone who gets to do what he wants to do all the time is his ideal of a leader. And therefore, that's kind of the relationship that is building right now. The framework that each of us has on Russia and the Soviet Union and Russia before that, I'm reading right now a fabulous one volume on um, the mathematician Leonard Euler of Switzerland, who spent many of years, literally the advent of St. Petersburg, just as one idea. Well, I would suggest that most of us have framed our belief of Russia around whatever the latest Tom Hanks movie is. Or maybe we remember Darkness at Noon, Arthur Kessler's shocking novel of a generation ago on, on the difficulties, the challenges of the Soviet Union. What do we get wrong in our prism about Russia? I think what we've gotten 
wrong in many ways is the belief that somehow Russia, there are lots of things that we get wrong and there's some things that we get right. But if you look at it, I think, especially in the aftermath of the end of the Cold War, there was this ex- belief that somehow Russia was moving towards the West, that Russia as a European country was was inevitably going to become more like that because there was no real alternatives. But in reality, there are many alternatives, and they are found in Russian history. And one of the unique aspects of Russian history is this belief that Russia needs to be a single power, that it should not necessarily be aligned and a part of other broader organizations. And so I think the assumption that somehow Russia was moving towards the West or could be integrated in the West was wrong. Russia has its own defined interests, and it will pursue those interests even against what we perceive as going against its economic interests. And, of course, I didn't mention the lodestone, folks. We just had a wonderful conversation with a Bloomberg News reporter, oh, two weeks ago or so, who literally grew up, Will, where Julie Christie and Omar Sharif went on that sleigh in Dr. Zhivago. So you mm-hmm. go you go east from Moscow, and you go out, and it's where the czars went when they were trying to get away from Napoleon. I get all that. Our John Micklethwaite just went east to Vladivostok. How attached is Moscow in Putin's Russia to the Siberia that's way out there, 5,000 miles to the east? Well, he's attached to it because that's the source of this greatest wealth. Russia's wealth is in its raw materials and its minerals, and most of them are located in Siberia. And therefore, the point for Moscow is to make sure that those raw materials remain a part of Russia and a part of Russia's wealth. The issue is always to what extent Russia is able to assert its will over Siberia and over these regions. Um, For a long period of time, the Russian state was, in fact, quite weak. Um, And therefore, this is kind of in the czarist period, uh, there was a lot of semi-autonomy for those types of regions simply because the state didn't reach into those regions. I think today it's very different. I think Putin realizes that he needs the regions. He needs to keep them a part of Russia. Right. Because without them, there's no real wealth that allows Russia to play on the international stage. If you're just joining us, Will Parmerance, we're thrilled to have him on, the deputy director of Kennan Institute, Woodrow Wilson Center, Washington, truly one of the nation's experts on Russia. Uh, Will, a delicate question, and I frame this with great respect for uh, the wonderful people from Russia in the United States. I see French in the United States. And they have a linkage to their country. I see Germans in the United States or people from China, people from Taiwan, first and second generation. As a general statement, what is the linkage of the Russians in America back to Mr. Putin? Is there a tight linkage? Do they hate the guy? What is that generalization? It really depends on what type of Russian you're talking about. Because, again, one of the interesting things about Russia is, up until recently, it really didn't have a diaspora in the United States. Most of the Soviet citizens who emigrated, they were either from Lithuania, from Ukraine. Interesting, interesting. They had their own sense of identity, and they didn't necessarily transfer it back to the Soviet Union or specifically to Russia. I think today you do have a larger diaspora of Russians, and they have a variety different opinions and attitudes. For a lot of them, I think they left Russia because they realized uh, they can't they, they needed a different environment in order to thrive and to function yeah. and to prosper. And therefore, they have a very ambivalent attitude towards Russia. Uh, for the most part, those people who leave Russia uh, do so for a desire to kind of achieve the things that they can't achieve right now in Russia. 
That being the case, there's also a group of Russians who are associated with the elite who have now been educated in foreign universities and prep schools and so forth. And I think they have a much greater attachment to Russia. Uh, nevertheless, they're not going back yeah. either. Uh, where is Mr. Putin right now economically? I've had real mixed signals on this. I get articles that Russia's flat on its back, et cetera, et cetera. From your filter of politics and international relations, is Russia flat on its back economically? Russia's flat on its back. It's not as things have, are not as bad as they were six months ago, mainly because the price of oil is not as low. Uh, it's gone from the 30s to the mid 40s, at times even 50, and that has given Russia a very small amount of breathing room. But nevertheless, the underlying economy is in terrible shape. And the central bank today just uh, lowered interest rates to 10%. But 10% isn't going to convince people to go out and get a loan, especially in Russia. And there are other reasons why they can't either. Consumer uh, demand is down. One of the interesting things going on nowadays is that workers are no longer getting paid. This was a symptom that occurred at the end of the Soviet Union, that the wage arrears in factories, in state contracts, and so forth. Um, and the state is desperate for money. They're talking about various different types of privatizations, well, and they can't take place because well, there's not enough money. Right. They're not going to get Let's, enough money if they sell it. Will Pomerantz with us, the Kennan Institute. Mike, we had a fascinating discussion in our last section, bigger, broader themes. Mike, we got into the conversation. Julie Christie... John Micklethwaite and Vladivostok, all in one conversation. Oh, well, I always thought you were going to tell me uh, there was a remake of Dr. Zhivago. Exactly, and John Micklethwaite's going to play Omar Sharif. I mean, John Micklethwaite, of course, folks. And Marie Holdren is going to be uh, yes. Julie Christie. And Marie with Noe Holdren is going to play Julie Christie out of our London office. Anyways, Will Pomerantz, let's go narrow here, and let's go the border that Mr. Putin faces uh, with the Baltic states in Eastern Europe. I'm fascinated by the relationship, for example, of Russia and Finland. There's that lengthy eastern Finnish border, which is, which is stoked in history, isn't it? Steeped in history, isn't it? Yes, it is. And um, obviously Finland was actually a part of the Russian Empire up until 1917, and it has fought several wars with Russia, both a war of independence and in uh, 1940. Uh, and it is a, a question as to what Finland needs to do in order to defend itself against what is perceived as a resurgent Russia. Finland has always been militarily neutral, and I think Finland is revisiting that issue. The Finnish example is also very interesting because the argument is that Ukraine now should adapt the same type of neutral model that Finland does. And clearly Finland doesn't want to do, uh, Ukraine doesn't want to do that either. So there's a long history of tension uh, between Finland and Russia, um, and Finland has to decide as well to what extent it needs to seek out potentially NATO membership in order to defend itself with a resurgent Russia. How are the Russians going, as we understand it, the, the, the U.S. policy and NATO policies to put some more troops into the Balkans, uh, in, not the Balkans, into um, the uh, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia area, uh, how are the Russians going to take that? Uh, they're going to take it very badly, and they're going to increase their number of troops. Um, it will be a, a, a vicious cycle because the Russians will match those types of a actions by NATO um, and probably raise them as well. So there's a real question as to whether the U.S. 
NATO are making simply symbolic gestures to the Baltic states by sending more troops, or whether we need to do more a more uh, advanced placement of U.S. troops and be more engaged in the Baltics and revive NATO. Well, is there a way to ratchet down the tensions? Or are we gonna, in a situation like during the Cold War where we just sort of have to keep responding to Russia? I think that essentially we will let Russia raise the ante, as it were, but I don't think NATO keeps uh, trying to match what Russia tries to do. I think the issue really is how long Russia can afford to continue to raise this ante uh, in light of its current economic difficulties. The argument would be that Russia can do this indefinitely because it views it in its strategic interests. Um, but as we discussed in the, in the earlier segment, Russia faces significant economic headwinds. And in that sense, it's unclear how long Russia can maintain its current pace and its current military uh, uh, engagement and, and, and so forth. Tom, can I follow up here? Just, please, is, please, is, please. A question just occurred to me, because this has come up in the presidential race. It came up yesterday in Trump's speech where he said our military is in terrible shape. How good is the Russian military, and how do we compare? I think what we've learned over the last two years is that the Russian military is stronger than we initially anticipated. In many ways, we view the Russian military or had viewed the Russian military as the leftover of the Soviet military, which wasn't very good, uh, which really couldn't maintain a foreign force and couldn't exert power overseas. I think we've clearly now reassessed that. Uh, I think Russia clearly has made marked improvements in its ability to engage abroad. How, how, well, how strong is their army overall? It's still a conscript army. Um, it's still poorly prepared and so forth. The question is, um, in terms of the U.S. strength vis-a-vis Russia, the reality is that the U.S. strength and NATO strength, no matter what, will not be in a position to challenge Russia in its own backyard and in countries that are right. not in NATO. And that's the, uh, that's the underlying tension. Well, thank you so much for the briefing. A very valuable William Pomerantz, Deputy Director, Kennedy Institute for Advanced Russian Studies, Woodrow Wilson, Washington, D.C., uh, just, Mike, just extraordinary discussion. That was just, I, I, I learned. What I love about surveillance, folks, is I actually, John Tucker, when I leave the building after my three-hour day, yeah. you know, we get in here at you like 5.50. That's news. 5.50, and I'm out of here by 9 a.m. Right. And and I, I find it, you know, I, I learn something every day. This is good. The presidential candidate should be young every day. They learn something. <laughs> yes. Some need to. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Well, uh, Hillary Clinton is fine. She's back on the campaign trail. Everything is good. But her illness over the weekend raised some questions in people's minds. I know this was a talking point for a lot of people about what would happen if some presidential candidate someday did get sick enough to have to drop out once they'd already been selected by a convention. 
And uh, no, I was asked this by a number of people, Tom, and uh, I didn't know. We found somebody who does. Richard Pildes is a New York University School of Law professor, uh, author of the book Romanticizing Democracy, P- Political Fragmentation and the Decline of American Government. He's uh, one of the nation's leading scholars of constitutional law, and I guess this is a constitutional issue. Uh, what, uh, Professor, would happen if a uh, hypothetical candidate, um, Tom Keene, slipped on an olive, cracked his head open, and couldn't continue the campaign? Well, good to be talking to you, Mike, about these issues. And, of course, this is such a low-probability event in the current circumstance, but I think a lot of people are interested in understanding our system and, you know, how it deals with these kinds of uh, issues. They would be obviously enormously momentous if they actually happened. So if a, a nominee of one of the major parties got sick, had to withdraw, even died after the nomination and before the election, uh, the process would start with the uh, political parties. After all, this is you know a nominee of the party. People tend to forget that. Uh, and both the Republican National Committee, which is the organization that kind of runs the Republican convention, or the Democratic National Committee, uh, would have the power to choose a replacement candidate. Um, they could, in theory, you know, hold another convention, um, and if somebody died or withdrew right after the convention, maybe that would happen. But much more likely, uh, what would happen is the committee itself would make the choice for the replacement. Um, so that's a group on the Republican side. It's around 150 people or so. On the Democratic side, it's a, a larger group that makes up the, the Democratic National Committee around maybe 450 people or so. Um, and in the first instance, that committee on either side would choose the replacement nominee. Then you have various issues about how you get that nominee on the ballot in different states. Uh, you know, is this replacement happening a month before the election, three months before the election, two weeks before the election? And then there are various issues about what the electors in the Electoral College might do. And, you know, we can talk through the different layers involved here if, uh, if you're interested. Well, definitely. I mean, we want, <laughs> we want to start with the idea of, um, yeah, the Republican National Committee or Democratic National Committee got to get together, but do either one have rules on what they would do in these cases? There, there really aren't uh, uh, very detailed rules for this, and this is probably a problem that the parties should consider addressing going forward. Um, there would be a majority vote of the committee that would actually, you know, ultimately make this decision. Um, the, who the committee members are is specified in advance, but various processes and uh, questions like how does the nominee get put forward? Um, can a nominee be, be put forward by any one person on the committee? Uh, does it require, you know, 15% of the committee's support? Can it be somebody, presumably it can be, but somebody who hasn't run in the primary? Surely, you know, that's permissible. Um, there's very little rule structure within the parties for this, uh, and this is something that's never happened to one of the two major parties in the modern era, let's say in the last 50 years or so, except for uh, the vice presidential nominee of the Democratic Party, Tom Eagleton, who did get replaced shortly after the convention. Your academics is fabulous, and part of it is on polarization. What is the distinction of the populism now of Mr. Sanders and Mr. Trump versus the populism of William Jennings Bryan? Well, that's a a fascinating question. Um, 
So I, I think that part of what's different today, which we're all sort of aware of, is the role of social media. I agree. Media is the, the distinction. It's a huge distinction. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, the extent to which rumors circulate almost instantaneously uh, across the Internet and then get picked up and repeated before there's time to correct any mistakes, that's very significant. Um, I think the ability to unify disaffected people uh, throughout the country is much greater now because of the role of social media. I think the ability to bypass the various traditional gatekeepers uh, so that, you know, insurgent candidates uh, like a Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders have, have more ability uh, to, to get out there to the constituency they're trying to reach. That's very significant. So obviously you don't have to go through uh, the major broadcast networks to get attention anymore. Uh, and you don't really need the support yeah. of the party leaders anymore. So with us, Rick Pildes of New York University Law School. It is September where children take abrupt turns in academics. We had to get Pildes on because he did this. Rick Pildes, you were distinguished in physical chemistry at Princeton. I assume <laughs> you waited through Atkins or whatever in physical chemistry. <laughs> what did you do, like sit in the chem lab and go, I want to be in law? How did you <laughs> shift from these are the These are the most surprising questions I've had in an interview in a long time. Good. This is how, great. I love it. How I did you think anybody would be interested. How did you shift from physical chemistry to ending up with Abner Victor, Mik, Mikva and Thurgood Marshall in <laughs> law? How did that happen? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I spent a lot of time with graduate students who were doing work in chemistry and I began to get a pretty clear picture of what the next seven or eight years would look like in graduate school. And basically the image was working in some basement with no windows, with equipment that never worked, uh, to get six months of data. Uh, and that didn't seem very exciting, I have to say. And I also found myself becoming more you know, socially, politically kind of oriented. I wanted to be more yeah. engaged with the world, with issues. So when I first went to law school, I actually thought that I would take advantage of my science background and, you know, go into something like environmental law. Right, right. Um, but then it turned out uh, I did do some work in that area, and it turned out I wasn't as interested as I thought. Right. And I wanted to be an academic, and so that's okay. the path I pursued. One other question on this, Mike, then I know you want to get back to the politics of the moment. Nobody was politically as interesting as Abner Mikva within our law a long time ago. What was it like clerking for Mikvah of Chicago? Yes, and I'm actually a Chicagoan myself, by the way. So when I was a teenager, I worked uh, handing out leaflets for his congressional campaign. So part of what was so unusual about Abner Mikvah, who you know just died at 90 uh, this summer, uh, is that he worked at the highest levels of the United States government in all three branches. I'm not sure there's anybody in the modern era who's done the same. He was uh, a congressman from Illinois for many years. Then he was a federal judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, which is the court, you know, kind of right below the U.S. Supreme Court. And then he was the White House counsel to President Bill Clinton. He was, uh, you know, an, an early reform politician on the Democratic Party side. So he took on the daily machine in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things, he was a wonderful guy, and uh, one of the things that was most remarkable about him is that for all the years he was in politics, uh, he always managed to maintain a tremendous sense of integrity uh, about his views and about his personal 
life that was just never and yeah. everybody across the aisle just had huge agreed i, I, I can't him. say enough about that mike about the battles that he had with the chicago machine uh on a almost it seemed like almost on a daily basis michael i'm yeah, sorry they, we're doing they redistricted him out of his district they yeah exactly. he destroyed so. his political career <laughs> Um, he had to move from Hyde Park, uh, where the University of Chicago is, yeah. where he was first elected, up to the North Shore uh, suburbs. But, you know, also about Abner Mikva, it, it turned out he became a, a major mentor to so many of the most significant uh, figures today. So he was uh, a, certainly a major mentor for Elena Kagan, who yeah. uh, is now, of course, on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, he was a uh, significant mentor for Merrick Garland, who's been nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court, who's also from the Chicago area. And, of course, he was one of the most significant early political mentors for Barack Obama when uh, Barack Obama was representing Hyde Park in the Illinois state legislature. Uh, so just a wonderful, wonderful human being who is beloved uh, across the aisle and a great yeah. person to work for. Michael? I want to get back to um, the, the issue of uh, presidential candidates on the ballot uh, and ask what would happen if the election were over. Uh, and somebody won and then died or was incapacitated. Well, this is also one of the things about our system that is uh, a little bit uh, uh, unusual. You know, pe and people kind of forget this, but, you know, we have the election in November. Uh, but, of course, uh, you don't. the president, new president doesn't take office uh, until January 20th. So there's a, a three-month gap there. And on top of that, because formally the president is chosen through the Electoral College process, after the popular vote takes place in November, we still formally have to have the Electoral College meet, which they do in December, and they have to formally vote and send their votes to Congress, which Congress doesn't receive and formally count until January. And, you know, you can imagine all sorts of things going wrong uh, at different points in that three-month interval between the election and the new government actually taking office. Uh, and if a person who won the presidential vote uh, on Election Day actually died before being sworn in, um, the answer is fairly easy if that takes place after the Congress has counted the votes of the Electoral College. There, the Constitution is very clear that the vice president would take over. So. If the president-elect died between early January and January 20th, that's pretty easy. It does actually get a bit messier if the person who wins the popular vote in November dies before the Electoral College formally meets and votes. <laughs> um, I suspect what would happen is that the electors of that party would go ahead and vote for the vice presidential nominee from that party. Um, and I suspect that's what would stick as the result. But there is no legal framework, you know, that actually spells out exactly yeah. what's supposed to happen. And so you can just imagine the kind of controversies that would erupt and the people from both sides running into the courts to try to get the courts to resolve this. And, you know, these are the kind of gaps in our system that no one thinks about until the, something actually happens. And then it's too okay. late. I got to fix I, the problem. I have only a minute left, so I have to ask you this quickly. Um, and this isn't about somebody dying, but two people staying on the ballot. There are scenarios everybody's wargaming out that Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump could end up tied in electoral votes. Uh, and then, you know, in theory, that would send it to the House. But are electors required to vote for somebody? So 
The first answer is some state laws require them to vote for the person who won the popular vote. But the second, it's something like 29 states have laws like that. But there's a real debate about whether those laws are actually constitutional and whether the way the Electoral College is set up in the Constitution, at the end of the day, the electors have to be free to vote for whomever they think you know, is the appropriate person to vote for. So we so end up- we would once again be in the courts to resolve that. All right. We'll keep our fingers crossed. Get out and vote, everybody, so that we don't end up with a tie, um, because we don't want to go back to courts on that. Rick Pilties from New York University Law School. I have a feeling we'll be talking to him again before that was great. Uh, January yeah, 20th really when, uh, when uh, the new president is sworn in. Um, and he's right. You remember, Tom, in London after Brexit, uh, the, Cameron resigned. Theresa May took over. It took all of 24 hours. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.